invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. We are nearing the end of this great book. So today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12 verses 18 to 29. As you're flipping there, what a promise that Brian just prayed, huh? That right now, as we open God's word, he's about to do something. This is not going to be wasted time. Now, I can't promise exactly what that will be in your life, but the Lord will be working now. What might he be pleased to do this morning? So let's let's hear this with anticipation and eagerness. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, let me give you two scenarios this morning. Scenario one. Imagine that you have a very demanding boss. Some of you are like, that's not hard. Okay, that's not the the point. Imagine that you have a very demanding boss and he's asked you to come to his office to see him by the end of the day. He needs to talk to you, he says, about your performance. And it sounded ominous. Now, you know that you need to go, but every time you get close to his office, you start to reach out for the handle, your stomach gets in knots, and you suddenly find lots of other things to do instead of going in to see him. As you get closer, you're terrified of what he's going to say. And you're terrified, terrified of what might happen to you. So every time you approach his door, you are overwhelmed with fear. Okay, that's scenario one. Scenario two. Now imagine you are on your way to the vacation of your dreams. And your spouse is going to meet you there. You're on your way and your GPS is telling you that you're getting closer and closer And you can feel the anticipation building. You can feel your worries starting to melt away. All the stuff, the stresses from home and work and just your responsibilities are slowly dissipating. And instead they're being replaced by this eager anticipation of this vacation. You look forward to all that awaits you. And as you do, you can't help but smile. Even though you're all by yourself. You feel your face start to break out into a smile. And as you park your car and approach the door, joy floods your heart. 
Okay, that's scenario two. So two scenarios. Both scenarios are the same and that you are drawing near to a place and a person, right? And yet we know those two scenarios are very different, are they not? Why are they different? If, if they we're doing the same fundamental thing of approaching a person and a place, why would they be so radically different? Well, obviously, our responses are different because the reality of what we are approaching is different. The thing that we're coming up to, the thing that we draw near to is radically different. And hence, so is our response. You find yourself, your response shaped by the reality of what you draw near to. Either you respond in fear or you respond in joy. Well, in our passage, we see the same exact thing. Now, all through the book of Hebrews, if you've been tracking with us, we've seen that because of Jesus, we can now draw near to God. This has been all through the book, that that's what the cross has made possible. Let me just give you a few places we saw it. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So, over and over again, we can draw near. We can draw near. All the other stuff that we looked at couldn't make us ready to draw near, but now we can draw near. And that same word that's been showing up, draw near, draw near, is actually in our passage. Although for some reason, it's now translated, come to. Come to. And there's a contrast set up in that first paragraph between what we have not come to, what we have not drawn near to, and what we have come to. So the question our passage is going to answer for us this morning is this. When we draw near to God through Jesus, what are we actually drawing near to? What are the realities we come to when we come to God? And we want to know that, right? Because we want to know what's real so that we can respond rightly. See, in verses 18 to 24, you see the answer to the question. You see our reality. And this section is framed around two different mountains. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And these are two different pictures of God's people drawing near before him. And both took place on mountains. But once again, these mountains are radically different. And it's important that we know and remember the reality of what we've drawn near to in the gospel. Because if we don't know our reality rightly, we won't respond rightly. So we need to know what it is we've drawn near to so that we can respond rightly. So that's kind of how our passage is going to break down. For you note takers, let me just give you the outline so you know where we're going. The two big sections are going to be our reality and our response. Now the first part in verses 18 to 24 is our reality. And we're just going to look at two main points. The fear of Mount Sinai and the joy of Mount Zion. And then in the second section in our response, we're going to see two ways we are to respond. We are to feel the weight of the warning and feel the wonder of worship. Okay, so that's where we're going. So let's, let's jump in first and look at our reality. Let's first look at the mountain we have not come to. So look again at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay, now if you notice as we read through that, you say, well, it didn't say anything about Sinai in there. Where, why are you calling this Mount Sinai? Well, because this matches the description that we see in Exodus and Deuteronomy of when God comes down upon Mount Sinai. So do you remember this scene? Hopefully you recall this. Setting the stage, God had delivered Israel 
from slavery in Egypt, right? He's done amazing things to work this rescue. He's brought his people out and he's brought them to a mountain to worship him. That's why they were delivered. Over and over again, he tells Pharaoh, let my people go that they may come out and serve or worship me. So now he's brought him to the mountain. This mountain is where the Ten Commandments are given. This is where God makes a covenant with his people. If you're in our morning class, I know you guys were talking about covenants this morning, and I, I overheard just a snippet as I walked by, and I was like, yes, they're talking about the Mosaic Covenant, which is what happened here. God made a covenant with his people we call the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. Now, to get a sense for what this is like, like I need you guys to put on your imaginations. okay? Because sometimes we read passages like this, and I think it doesn't land on us. So you need to just let these words wash over you and do your best to picture what would this have been like. Okay, so listen to how this mountain scene was described back in the Old Testament. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder... And louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Deuteronomy 4 adds, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. Now, I wish someone would make a movie about this. Like with all the CGI and stuff we could do now. I mean, can you imagine? So maybe you've seen pictures in the news recently of the wildfires in California. It's one of the largest they've had in history. So imagine seeing these pictures of this monstrous wildfire raging out of control Now, if that's not enough, now just add on the fact that in the midst of this raging wildfire, there is thunder and lightning. And while you're observing this raging inferno of lightning and thunder, the whole ground is shaking. Not just a little little shake, it's trembling beneath your feet. And then if that's not terrifying enough, out of the blue, loud enough to be heard over the flames and the thunder, comes a trumpet. Nobody's playing the trumpet. Do you understand that? Like this is not you look over and see this guy. You don't know where it's coming from. You just hear a trumpet cut through the noise and the chaos. And it gets louder and louder and louder. And then you hear a voice. All of you, all massive group of you hear a voice. There's no microphones, there's no speakers, but there's a voice loud enough to cut through all that noise and to be heard. And it sounds like thunder. How are you feeling? Hopefully you're feeling terrified because that's how I feel. I hope I'm not any more cowardly than the rest of us. I would be shaking in my boots if I hear that. They're so scared. It says that the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us anymore lest we die. They couldn't bear to hear God's words. In fact, they were desperate for a mediator. They said, we're begging you, give us someone to stand in our place and go into God's presence for us. So so you go, Moses, you go for us, represent us, and we'll stay back. And then you report back to us. 
And notice the order that God gave them. He says, no one can come close. He gathers his people to the mountain, but says, that don't get too close to it. They had to keep a safe distance, or else they'd be destroyed. Notice it says, if even an animal got too close, it would be killed. In fact, in Exodus, it says that if an animal gets too close, you either had to stone it or shoot it with an arrow. Why does it specify that? Because you had to stay far enough. You could shoot an arrow at a distance or you could throw a rock at a distance. You couldn't get close enough to kill it any other way. You had to do everything at a distance. At Mount Sinai, the blazing fire of God's holiness came down among his people and it terrified them. Why? Why was it so scary? Because they knew that God's holiness can't be in the presence of sin. And they knew that they were shot through with sin, head to toe. No one that day, I assure you, thought small thoughts about God. There was no one who ignored him. There was no one who thought he wasn't a big deal. No one who thought, eh, he's okay. Everyone saw what it means that God is holy, holy, holy. And like Isaiah They said, woe is me. I am undone. This experience of God's holiness was so terrifying that even Moses, who was a friend of God, the one who God spoke to face to face, Moses, the great man of faith, trembled with fear. For Israel that day, coming to God meant fear. It meant being deathly afraid to get too close. It meant hearing God's voice announce his law, what he requires of us. And it meant begging for someone to go into God's presence for us and to stand between us and the blazing fire of God's holiness. When they came to Mount Sinai, what they came to was terror. So what's our author's point? Our author's point is you have not come to that. Some of you need to hear that this morning. That is not what you've come to. If you belong to Jesus and are trusting in him, we don't come to that scene. When you come to God through Christ, you are not coming to gloom and darkness. You don't come to the fiery flame of fear and the thundering voice of the law declaring, you must do, do, do. You don't need to keep a safe distance from God because you're afraid of what he's going to do to you if you get too close. You don't need to keep a safe distance out of fear that if I do get too close, he'll see who I really am. And he'll see the mess and the sin and the brokenness and, and I don't know what's going to happen. If you are in Christ, you don't come to Mount Sinai. You don't come to God through the law. You come to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you don't need to come terrified. You don't need to stay distant. Instead, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We can draw near in full assurance of faith. There's a great, great old hymn that starts off. It says this. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. Why? He has hushed the law's loud thunder. And he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. That is the good news, friends. That is what Christ has done. So if we're in Christ, we don't come to the fear of Mount Sinai. Instead, we come to something better. Look at verses 22 to 24. So he already said, you have not come. Now he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the first thing I want you to notice is when we come to these glorious realities. 
we're tempted to read this, and I, I, I think I often have read through this and think, oh man, I can't wait for that. That's going to be glorious. But notice, it does not say, you will come to Mount Zion. What does it say? It says, you have come. So while we don't yet experience the fullness of these realities, in a very real sense, they are already ours in Christ. These are not truths for someday. These are truths for today, this morning. That's what we do when we gather. If we have come to God through Jesus, this is what we've come to. Now we know them in part, and one day we shall know them fully. But we can right now, this morning, know them truly. So what do we come to? We're going to spend a little bit of time walking through these, and I I hope the Lord whets your appetite. I hope he encourages you about what you have today and whets your appetite for what's to come. So what do we come to when we come to God through Jesus? First, it says we come to Mount Zion. And man, the more I've worked on, the more I've gone through Hebrews, I realize we don't talk enough about Zion anymore. If you read the old hymns, man, Zion is all over the place. Nowadays, you say Zion to most Christians, and I think we're, we draw a blank. What are we talking about? Zion. Zion, the history of where the name comes from, was originally part of the city of Jerusalem. David conquered this city, and so over time, it became the city of the king because David set up his capital there. And it kind of became synonymous with Jerusalem. You could call it Zion, you could call it Jerusalem. And it became known as the city of the king. This is where God's temple and his earthly presence dwelt. It was this picture of strength and beauty and joy. Listen to how Psalm 48 talks about it, celebrates it. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So this is this amazing city that God establishes. The same place that you recall from Psalm 2, God says, As for me, I have set my king, where? On Zion, my holy hill. So there's this city that is the capital. It's the place where the king is to be found, where he sits enthroned, ruling and reigning. And it is beautiful. It is a glorious city. And notice that this Jerusalem, this Jerusalem that we come to, it's not in the Middle East. We need to be clear about this. We're not talking that one day our hope is that we go to the Middle East. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. In fact, it's the same city, if you recall from chapter 11, verse 10, that Abraham was looking forward to. The city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And the city shows up not just way back in Genesis, but it shows at the end of your Bibles in Revelation 21. This city is where our journey is headed. All through Hebrews, we've been talking about we're on a pilgrimage. We're on our way somewhere. The Christian life is not static. It's moving towards something. We're headed home. And home for the Christian is in this city. Listen to how our future home is described. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Pause there. Just think about If you've ever been to a wedding, does the bride just roll out of bed? Does she just like throw some clothes on? Oh, is that today? And she hurries there and just kind of, she's got her sweats on and just no makeup. No, she's she's beautiful. She's radiant. She is breathtaking. And this city is described as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. 
that is our city. That is Zion. This city is described as having strong walls and foundations that provide everlasting safety and security. It's described as having a radiant beauty. It uses gemstones and precious things to describe the the magnificence of how beautiful this place is. It describes it as full of light. There is no night there. So there's certainly no gloom or darkness. There's a river of life that flows through it. And on either side of the river of life, there's a tree of life. The point is that this place is brimming with life and light and joy and peace. That is Zion. And that's what we've come to. And in this city, it says there are innumerable angels in festal gathering. In other words, there's more angels than can be counted. That's what innumerable means. In Revelation, it talks about myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands. If you're not quite sure exactly how many is in a myriad, that's the point. Nobody knows and nobody can count it. There's just all these glorious beings. And remember, we're not talking about little precious moments Angels, we're talking about the most glorious beings that every time they show up in the Bible, people fall down flat because they're like, whoa. And this is filled with more than you can count with these glorious beings. And it says that they're there. What are they doing? They're having a festal gathering. You know what that is? It's kind of like what it sounds like. That word, it's, it's a feast. This word for festal gathering, it describes a joyful party and celebration. I mean, they're having the party to end all parties. And it is just filled with joy and laughter and celebration. So that we got to ask, what do angels celebrate? Like, what is causing them so much joy? They're rejoicing over the Son of God saving sinners like you and me. How do I know? Because Jesus tells us in Luke 15, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The angels go crazy over one sinner who repents. What do you think they're doing as sinner after sinner after sinner comes home to Zion? They're having a festal gathering. We know what they're going to say. Revelation 5 tells us that as they're gathered around the throne with these countless blood-bought people of God, they sing out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They are over the moon, excited and thrilled and happy. These are the things in which angels long to look. They're like, can you believe what Jesus has done? The Son of God who's existed eternally. He he went down and he rescued these people. He made them. They rebelled and he didn't crush them. Instead, he came down, took on the, the form of a man and walked among them, lived the life they should have but don't. And then he went to the cross for them. The ones who rebelled against him, the ones who nailed his hands to the trees, who spit on him, he died for them and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Not only that, then he rose victorious and he ascended back and we welcomed him into the courts of heaven as the resurrected and reigning king. And now he's bringing home sinner after sinner and we, the angels, just are beside ourselves with joy. Look what God's son has done. That's what you've come to. We get to go to that celebration. Which leads us to the next part. It's not just angels there. We have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This word assembly, this is the same word that's all over your New Testament for church. So in other words, this local assembly right here this morning is a microcosm of that full assembly. We're this little sneak peek. It's all God's people gathered. And what's amazing is that 
when it says firstborn, that's plural. In other words, what that's telling us is that in this assembly, this church, this gathering of God's people, all the assembly is referred to as firstborn. Not just Jesus, but that title has been distributed so that we all share in it. Now most likely this is referring to the fact that we are co-heirs. Firstborn would have the rights of inheritance. And so we've already talked a lot about inheritance throughout Hebrews. It's a good chance that's what it means by the assembly of the firstborn. It might also be alluding to back in Numbers, God tells Moses to take, make a record of all the firstborn. And then they're going to be redeemed. Sacrifices will be offered in their place. So what do you have in heaven? You have assembly of all those who are enrolled who have been redeemed. Either way, notice they're all enrolled in heaven. In other words, this list is, quote, everyone whose names has been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Friends, this never ceases to amaze me that if you belong to Jesus, your name is recorded in God's book. Like God hasn't just saved X number of people and said, well, I wonder whoever fills it up. He has names. And if you belong to Jesus, your name is in his book. And in God's book, if the name is there, not one is missing. He doesn't say, well, I got most of them checked off here. No, every name is accounted for. You're not just part of a crowd. God knows your name and the lamb was slain for you. When those angels say, worthy is the lamb who was slain, they're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain for you and you and you. I love this picture. In Psalm 87, we won't go there, but God even uses this language of recording those who are born in Zion. So there's this list. We know, you've heard of the Lamb's book of life. You've heard of this book found throughout Scripture. But in Psalm 87, it explicitly says, The Lord records as he registers, this one was born there in Zion. He has a role of those citizens who belong to Zion, who belong to this city that we're going to, that we've come to. And notice what's next. We've also come to God, the judge of all. And this is the goal of the gospel. Remember at Sinai how we had to stand far off. Don't get too close. Stay back. But now it says we've come to God. How is that possible? 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We can come close now. We're not terrified. We're not afraid and have to keep our distance. We can come close. Right. In fact, there is nothing. If you are in Christ, there is nothing that keeps you from God's presence. There is no sin that bars you from his presence if you are in Christ. There's no weakness, no failure that keeps you from getting close to God. And while it says that he is the judge of all, that no longer terrifies us. If you're not a Christian and you realize that you come to God, the judge of all, you should be terrified. But not if you're a Christian. We don't fear his verdict because Christ has already been counted guilty in our place. And he's already paid the price. And God, the judge, now looks at Jesus and is happy to pronounce us pardoned. So the picture is not of God waiting to levy our sentence against us. When it says we've come to God, the judge of all, it's the judge declaring not guilty for all of eternity and for making right all that's wrong. Which leads us to the next thing we come to. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. These are all the believers of all time. There's an old concept of this you may have heard of called the communion of saints. In other words, we prayed this morning for believers at another church in another place. And we tend to be more aware of that. We know we're not the only Christians that in this place, that there are Christians in other places that we have a fellowship with. 
a communion with, a sharing in Christ with. We get that. We think less often that we have a sharing in Christ with saints, not just of other places, but other times. That's what this is telling us. That's what the word communion of saints. It's in the old Apostles' Creed. that said, we believe in the communion of saints. We believe that we are shares, not just with people who are alive in 2021, but we are a part of a people who have always had faith in God. That throughout the ages, we come to this group of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And notice two things about these people. One, they've been made perfect. That means they've been made completely and fully able to draw near to God in Christ. How did that happen? Hebrews told us that. Hebrews 10, For by a single offering Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So this this group of people, they've been made perfect. What's the second thing you notice about them? It's that though they've been made perfect, there's still one thing they lack. What do they lack? They lack a body. Until the resurrection, they are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. They long and wait for the day when they are no longer unclothed, but clothed. They are absent from the body, but they are at home with the Lord. Which brings us to the Lord himself. Verse 24. These are simple, simple words, but not a simple truth. We have come to Jesus. Friends, that is the best news you will ever hear. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We need to be reminded, and if you're here and you're just checking out Christianity, you need to know something about Christianity. Christianity is not fundamentally about a set of principles or rules. Being a Christian is not mainly about morals or certain practices. Christianity is about a person. A person named Jesus. He's what we're after. He's what we want. He's what we trust. He's what we desire. Christianity is about the bread of life who alone can satisfy the hunger of our souls. It's about the living water who alone can quench our thirst. It's about the good shepherd who is tender and strong, leading us and protecting us. It's about the one who is a friend of sinners, who is gentle and lowly. Our whole faith is about Jesus. And it says we have come to him. And how have we come to him? We've come to him as the mediator of a new covenant. That means we have the one we need to stand between us and God's blazing holiness. Just like the people at Sinai, they were terrified and said, we got to have somebody in between. We have him. We have a mediator. There's one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. He went before us into God's presence to offer the perfect sacrifice so that we can follow him home to Zion. The place that Jesus went to prepare for us, remember him telling us this in John 14, I've gone to prepare a place for you. That place has a name, and it's Zion. And because of him, because he is the mediator who's gone before us, we can now follow him home. And now that he's there, we are eternally safe. Why? Because he's able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for us. When we come to Jesus, we come to the one who is right now praying for you, who is going to bat for you, who is your advocate with the Father, saying, I died for them. I died for them. And that brings us to the last thing we come to, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, when Abel was killed by his brother Cain, God came looking for Cain, and when he found him, God said to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What was it crying for? For vengeance. Abel's blood said, 
Look what he's done. It testified to Cain's guilt and said, he did it. That's wrong. Take vengeance, God. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Jesus' blood does not cry out for vengeance. Jesus' blood says, forgive them. Jesus' blood sprinkled on us is what makes our evil consciences clean. And it's what cries out over you, friend. You are forgiven. He's not out for vengeance. He's already had it in Christ. That's what the cross is. If you are a believer in Jesus, vengeance has already been taken. If you're not, friend, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and I will repay. Because blood has been shed and you are all guilty. We are all guilty apart from Christ. So either vengeance is taken upon Jesus and now his blood speaks a better word of forgiveness or the blood of Abel still cries out seeking vengeance. Friends, we have not come to a mountain of fear and terror. We have not come to what is imperfect and temporary. We haven't come to the thunder of the law. We've come to Zion, the joyful, light-filled city of God. The city where angels celebrate the redemption of sinners. Where all those redeemed sinners of God are delighting in his presence. We've come to God himself whose holiness now thrills us instead of terrifies us. And we've come to Jesus who opened the way into Zion for us through his death. And to his blood that declares we are welcome there despite our sin. That is the glorious reality. We have come to Zion in part and we're on our way there to experience the fullness of these realities. So if that's our reality, how do we respond? Two ways. Feel the weight of the warning and feel the wonder of worship. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So what's our warning? Simple. Don't refuse him who's speaking. Who's speaking? The same one who's been speaking through this whole letter. Do you remember how the book of Hebrews begins? Very, very first verse. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God is the one speaking from heaven and he's speaking to us by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of his son Jesus. And what he's saying is he's warning us of the awful consequences of sin and the reality of his judgment against it. But he's also saying there's a way to be saved. There's a way out of destruction and a way into the city of Zion. That way is only through trusting in Jesus. His blood alone can speak this better word of forgiveness. And he alone can gain us entrance into the city of God. So we must run to him. Friends, do not ignore the gracious warning of God. The warning that he's given us and he is giving you right now. As we saw earlier in Hebrews... God is saying, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't ignore him. Don't put him on the back burner. Don't think, I'll get around to that later. Right now, I've got stuff i got to take care of. Don't think, I, I want to be young and enjoy some things, and then I'll kind of settle down later. You know, once kids come along, we'll do the church thing. Don't wait. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Run to him. Trust him. Treasure him. Why? Why is it so critical that you don't reject him? Verse 5. Not verse 5. The next verse. For if they did not escape with, when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Friends, God warned the people at Sinai, the ones who saw that stuff we talked about earlier, he warned them to listen and obey his words, to trust him. And yet they refused. 
They saw all that and they refused. And what happens? We know from Hebrews 4, they all fell dead in the wilderness. They were unable to enter Zion, it says, because of unbelief. And if they didn't escape God's judgment, how much less will we escape if we have a greater revelation? That's the case he's been making throughout. We, we've seen more than they saw because we've seen the cross. We've seen not, not just heard the word of prophets, we've heard the word become flesh. We've seen God's plan unfolding. So if we refuse that, we can't plead ignorance. So friends, feel the weight of the warning this morning. Don't reject God's voice in the gospel. Verses 26 to 27 remind us that when his judgment comes, it will be complete. Look there. At that time, meaning at Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, the little tremors at Sinai will look like a hiccup compared to the shaking that is to come. When God does his final shaking work, it will shake not just the earth, but the heavens. In other words, all of creation will be shaken. All the fleeting pleasures and momentary powers of this world will come crashing down. The only thing left standing will be what's unshakable. And that gives us a reason to worship. Why? Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the second way we respond to the reality that we've come not to Sinai, but to Zion. We feel the weight of the warning, and here we feel the wonder of worship. And there's two parts to feeling that wonder. First, we're to be grateful we're grateful for receiving an unshakable kingdom. We know that when everything else crumbles, God's kingdom remains. Daniel 7 tells of this kingdom given to Jesus. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. All the glorious realities we just looked at in Zion, all that we saw, it's never passing away. It's never coming to an end. And it says this kingdom has been given to us. Can you imagine that? Jesus told us in Luke 10, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure. What, what, is it, what does it please the Father to do? What, what makes God happy and delighted? It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Wow. What makes God happy is giving us that? That's unbelievable. This kingdom of forgiveness and life and light and joy and peace. Friends, how thankful should that make us? How slow to grumble, slow to complain, slow to be discontent should we be when that's been given to us? Everything else in your life might crumble. Everything else might be shaken. But oh, you've got a kingdom that never will. And because of that, we're not only grateful, we offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why, do we, why is it acceptable to worship him with reverence and awe? Because our God is a consuming fire. The God who came down at Sinai is still the same. God didn't change from Old Testament to New. He's still the same God we come to today. But we no longer need to be afraid because Jesus has made us able to come to him. But that doesn't mean we come to him lightly. We don't come flippantly. We come in awe of who he is. We come amazed at his power and glory. We never lose sight of his majesty and greatness. Hear me, God is not the man upstairs. He's not the big guy. He's not some old guy with a beard. He's none of those weak caricatures. God is the God who made people beg that he wouldn't strike them down by hearing his voice. God is magnificent and mighty. Angels veil their faces at his glory. 
That is still who God is. And we can never lose sight of that. He is still the one they call holy, holy, holy. So when we worship him, feel the wonder. The wonder that that holy and magnificent God welcomes sinners like you and me. What business do we have going before him? None. But he says, draw near. Come. We feel the wonder that though we are weak and sinful and repeatedly fail our king, we can now sing the mercies of our king and hear our king say, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. So friends, let me close this way. Come rejoice. Come rejoice now. Because fear is gone. Hope is sure. We have not come to Sinai and the terrors of the law. We've come to Zion and the joy of the gospel. Christ and his unshakable kingdom are ours forevermore. So let's worship him with gratitude and awe. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. You say we are to be grateful, and so we want to say thank you for giving us this kingdom. Undeserving though we are, you are gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. It pleases you to give us the kingdom, and so we joyfully receive it from you. We pray that you would help us to have eyes to see our current reality. Help us not stand at a distance, afraid to come to you. Help us not make excuses and look for other things to do instead of coming to you because we're afraid. Help us to come boldly into your presence through the blood of Jesus that made a way for us. And help us to glory in these realities. And Father, may we never lose our awe over who you are or the fact that you welcome us home to you in Zion. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.